The more that I read the Bible and the longer that I'm in pastoral ministry, the more experience that I have both as a follower of Christ and as a preacher of Christ, the more convinced I become that Matthew 13.44 is the most important commentary on the nature of true faith and therefore one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. In one single brief statement, Jesus illustrates in parabolic form what it means to believe unto salvation and therefore to enter into the everlasting kingdom. It's found in the midst of Matthew's so-called kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. Found in the midst of the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, the parables of the mustard seed and of the leaven and the pearl of great price and the net. And there in the midst of those kingdom parables, we find the parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of heaven? It means seeing a treasure that no one else can see a treasure that is hidden to everyone else's eyes, and seeing in that treasure infinite value such that you are willing to give up everything that you own in order to obtain it, and furthermore, that you do so eagerly and with great joy. That's saving faith. That's what true faith is like, the kind of faith that enters the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ and all that he is for us, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of righteousness, and everlasting inheritance and a new heaven and a new earth, that is the treasure hidden in the field. And in order to obtain him, you must sell everything. And my aim this morning, and my aim every morning, and the aim of this church is that you would sell everything to buy that field and to obtain that treasure. Yet before you will sell everything to obtain Christ and all that He is and all that He offers us, you must first see Him as infinitely valuable such that you eagerly, joyfully renounce all of your sin, all of your self-rule, every right that you have over your life, if only you may have Him. The two go together. You must see Him as of infinite value, of more value than everything else, because you've got to give up everything else in order to get Him. True faith, therefore, is seeing. At its, at its fundamental core, true faith is seeing Jesus Christ as infinitely valuable and more to be desired than anything else. And this, according to Jesus, is precisely what no one else can see but him who finds the treasure. He is hidden from their eyes, as hidden as a treasure buried in an ordinary, nondescript field. But this parable raises some pressing questions in my mind. Like, if the treasure is hidden, how is it that this man found it? 
Why did no one else find it? What makes him different from all the rest? And if the treasure is Jesus and all that he is for us, then he must be hidden in plain sight because the words and works of Jesus are known the world over being recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. So why doesn't everyone who hears or reads the gospel see in Christ a treasure of infinite value worth selling everything to obtain? Why do so many see Jesus as of little value? or of comparatively less value than money, or sex, or comfort, or television, or the praise of men. In short, why is the treasure hidden, and how does anyone go about finding it? Well, the reason the treasure is hidden, the reason most people do not see Jesus as infinitely valuable, they don't see him for who he is, who we just declared him to be in song, is because man is by nature spiritually blind such that when we are confronted with Christ in the gospel, we do not see in him the infinitely valuable glory of God. The Apostle Paul was painfully aware of this reality from his years of experience as a preacher and an apostle and an evangelist. And he wrote about it often, most clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, there is a satanic blindness over the the minds of of unbelieving, unregenerate people. It's like this this thick, impenetrable veil over their eyes that prevents them from seeing in the gospel the infinite divine glory of Jesus. But the blindness we find in the pages of Scripture is not merely external. It's not as if unbelievers are merely the unwilling slaves of Satan. There is also an internal blindness caused by our own sinful hearts that renders us deeply and intrinsically opposed to the glory of Christ and to his demand that we value him more than we value anything else. Paul speaks of this inward blindness, this inward opposition to Jesus and his demands of supremacy in places like Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It's hostilely opposed to God and His supremacy. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, what about Jesus in John chapter 3? who says that mankind shrinks from the light of his glory because we love the darkness of sin rather than the light of Christ. We love darkness. Our natural hostility toward God and our love for the darkness of sin blinds us to the infinite treasure of Christ. So we find two things at work which prevents mankind from seeing the treasure in the field. There is a 
a blindness that Satan actively casts upon us. There is a veil, a thick veil that he places over the minds of the unbelieving that blinds us to the light of the glory of Christ. And even if by chance some light were to break through, our natural hostility to that light and our natural love for the darkness would cause us to shrink back from that light anyway like the creatures of darkness that we are. In other words, we are doubly blind. That's why the treasure is hidden. Yet there is hope. If there, were, if there were no hope, there would be no evangelism and there would be no missions. And Paul would have just stayed by himself in Antioch. But there is hope. Because some will find the treasure and they will see in that treasure infinite value and they will joyfully, eagerly, willingly sell everything that they have in order to obtain it. But how? The answer is that God gives sight freely, sovereignly, as a work of his power. He gives sight to the blind so that they see the infinite glory of God in Christ. You see, sin and Satan are not sovereign. If that, would, if that were so, there would be no hope for anyone and all preaching would be in vain. Yet the Apostle Paul, who knew and understood spiritual blindness better than anyone else outside of Jesus, was confident that his preaching was not and would not be in vain. That there was a power at work greater than the power of sin and greater than the power of Satan. So he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Even though people are doubly blind, we do not lose heart. Even though your relatives are doubly blind, we do not lose heart. Even though the people of Cuba, the people of Seattle, the people of Shanghai, the people of Shandigar, India, the people of Jojakarta, Indonesia, even though they are doubly blind, we do not lose heart. Why? We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. You don't open the eyes of the blind by twisting the message. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what do you do, Paul? We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul did not lose heart even though he preached to spiritually blind people. Why? Because he was confident that even if the gospel was veiled, if he would just keep preaching Christ Jesus as Lord and serving people for Christ's sake then he would be as one holding a lantern in the darkness and the same God who spoke light into existence would speak light into the darkness of the human heart. Their eyes of their heart would be opened and they would see in the face of Jesus Christ the infinitely valuable glory of God and seeing that glory, they would sell everything they have in order to obtain it. They would smash their idols on the floor. Your eternity hangs 
on whether or not you see in Jesus greater treasure than everything else in the world. Your eternity hangs on whether or not you see Jesus as more to be treasured, more to be desired than everything else this world has to offer, even you. Your eternity hangs on whether or not you see Jesus as more glorious and more satisfying than your family, than your children, than your spouse, than sex, or television, or clothes, or a job promotion, or a bonus check or the praise and admiration of men. That's the message of the hidden treasure. But there's a massive problem. Satan and your sinful heart have conspired to blind you to the glory of Christ, which causes all of those other things, both good things and bad things, to pale in comparison. Therefore, by nature, you value other things, preeminently yourself, ahead of Christ, and that blindness will kill you forever unless it is cured. What you see or do not see in Jesus is a matter of ultimate consequence, and therefore a passage that deals with the matter of spiritual blindness and its cure is of ultimate relevance. And that's exactly what we have in Mark 8, 11 through 30. In these four paragraphs before us this morning, we find the embodiment of spiritual blindness, verses 11 to 13. We find a warning against spiritual blindness, verses 14 to 21. We find an illustration of spiritual blindness and its cure in verses 22 to 26. And we find the removal of spiritual blindness in verses 27 through 30. And at the end of this message, by the time we've worked our way through that passage, you're going to be faced with the same question that Jesus posed to his disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? Or, put another way, what do you see in me? That's the question Jesus is going to pose to each and every one of us this morning. And you will be forced to give an answer. What do you see in me? And my prayer this morning is that we would say, we see treasure. We begin with the embodiment of spiritual blindness, which is the Pharisees. That the Pharisees represent the embodiment of spiritual blindness, I think ought to startle us and to warn us because it shows us that one can be religiously zealous and morally upright and biblically knowledgeable and yet be completely and utterly blind to the glory of Christ. Let me state that in simpler terms. You can be a very active church member You can keep your nose clean morally, and you can know a lot of facts about the Bible and value a thousand other things more than you value Jesus. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven in order to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. 
Well, in Mark 8.10, at Dalmanutha, okay, we're back into the heart of Jewish Galilee after Jesus' long journey through Gentile territory, Jesus is accosted once again by the Pharisees. Um, the intent of their hearts is revealed by the two words that Mark chooses to describe their interactions with Jesus in verse 11. First, Mark says they argue with Jesus, which is a word that conveys a, a forceful pushing, a forceful opposition. And then they demand a sign in order to test Jesus. According to James Edwards, the word for test, in the Greek it's pyrotsign, it doesn't mean an objective test in order to discover the merit of something. Rather, it's an obstacle placed in someone's way in order to discredit them. In other words, the Pharisees are not coming to Jesus as honest seekers of truth. They are coming as hardened unbelievers seeking to destroy him. But Jesus sees straight through their scheme, and he does so with all such disingenuous questions. Mark says he, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Yeah, it's an expression of indignation and grief, and, and he just said no. He refused to grant them a sign. Why? The answer, I believe, is because Jesus knew it wouldn't work. It would not produce faith. Another miracle, another sign would simply provide them with further opportunity for rejection. Inevitably, they would, they would twist it to suit their own purposes, just like when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3, and they took it as a, an opportunity to accuse him of Sabbath-breaking. In fact, the language of this passage is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 13. You can put them side by side, verses 1 to 5 of Deuteronomy 13, and, and it's kind of eerie. The people in that passage, they're commanded to put to death a prophet who counsels rebellion against God's law, yet performs miracles. In other words, it seems that that's the category in which the Pharisees have placed Jesus. They've already determined that he's a, he's a commandment breaker, he's a Sabbath breaker, he's a blasphemer of God. They can't deny the fact that miraculous powers at work within him, and so they're trying to, to nudge him into the category of a miracle-working false prophet worthy of being stoned. Their request for a sign, in other words, is not part of an honest search for truth. It's an expression of their unbelief. Be careful about asking God for signs. And I say that, I say that honestly. It's easy to do so. I did so last week, matter of fact. Uh, I was kind of convicted this morning as I read back over this. Uh, it's easy to do on the mission field to try to, to get your faith bolstered by, by seeing some miraculous sign. Be careful with that. More often than not, the request for a sign is not a desire to see your faith bolstered. It's actually an expression of doubt. It's an expression of unbelief. And that was the case here. The fact is that miraculous signs are incapable of producing saving faith. They can't do it. And that's not the way most people think. Most people think, if God would just show me something, then I would believe. You probably have some friends and relatives who say that. It's not true, though. How do I know? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, the same Pharisees had already seen numerous signs, and yet they remained in their unbelief. It hadn't worked for them. 
They saw Jesus heal a man with a withered hand right in front of their eyes, and they accused him of Sabbath breaking. Mark 3, 1 to 6. They saw Jesus cast a demon out of a man, and they accused him of being in league with the devil. Mark 3, 22. In other words, miraculous signs have been utterly ineffective thus far in overcoming their spiritual blindness. Second reason. On a different occasion, when the Jews came to Jesus demanding that Jesus tell them plainly if he was the Christ, Jesus answered in this way, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. In other words, their unbelief is not owing to a lack of evidence. Jesus had done works in the Father's name, and they testified to his identity, but that testimony was not seen, it was not heard, because they were not sheep. The problem was a matter of the heart, not a lack of evidence. And finally, in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus adds on this statement when he says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Matthew 16, 4, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, I'm not going to show off for you anymore. You and everyone else in this generation will see one more sign, and it's the sign of Jonah, which is obviously a a reference to his resurrection. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man spend three days in the heart of the earth. So Jesus did perform one final sign for the Pharisees and for the rest of the generation and for us. He rose from the dead on the third day. But question... Did that result in saving faith on the part of the Pharisees? No, it did not. Not at all, in fact. Rather, when confronted with the incontrovertible evidence of the empty tomb, they stuck their fingers in their ears and they concocted a story about the Roman guards falling asleep and the disciples coming by night and stealing the body. That's why Jesus refuses to give them a sign. Because those who are so blind to the glory of God will never be convinced by external proofs. They will either reject them as false, just smoke and mirrors, or twist them to serve their own purposes, or they'll simply say it's insufficient, I want more. Give me more evidence. The Pharisees are the embodiment of spiritual blindness, displaying that satanic and sinful unbelief that is so pervasive and so pernicious that when it is exposed to the blazing light of Christ, it shrinks back and shrieks out in horror because it loves the darkness. And it is the blindness and unbelief of the Pharisees against which Jesus warns the disciples in the next passage. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. 
and the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? So here we're presented with a different kind of spiritual blindness, or maybe better, spiritual blindness of a different degree. Evidently in their haste to leave Dalmanutha amid the mounting pressure of the Pharisees, the disciples had neglected to pack sufficient bread for the journey. And when they realized that they had only one loaf between them, they became very anxious and the accusations began to fly as to whose job it was to remember the bread. And in response, Jesus issues them this word of warning. He says, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, leaven, as you know, is yeast, which causes dough to rise by breaking down the sugars and producing carbon dioxide, little pockets of which make the bread airy and light. Well, the thing about leaven is that over time, it works itself through the entire dough. You You can't leaven one portion of dough and leave the other unleavened and then come out with a loaf, half of which is airy and light and the other half of which is flat. You can't do it. Uh, Leaven has an infectious quality about it, and evidently, so does spiritual blindness. And we need to watch out for it. In Jesus' metaphor, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is unbelief. It is spiritual blindness. And Jesus warns the disciples about it because he sees the remnants of this leaven in them. Having been with Jesus for well over a year, having seen all of his miracles, in particular the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, how on earth could they sit there in the boat and be worried about the fact that they only had one loaf of bread? The unbelief resident within the hearts of the disciples is staggering. Even after Jesus warns them in verse 15, they then continue to discuss the fact that they have no bread. I mean, you can almost picture Jesus interrupting their their faithless quarreling with a serious warning against unbelief. They kind of stop dead in their tracks with their mouth agape, and then when he finishes, they just pick up right where they left off, accusing and pointing fingers about who forgot the bread. Well, with that, Jesus had had enough. James Edwards writes, the disciples are anxious about their lack of bread, and Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. And so he immediately just unleashes this fire hose of questions upon them. Nine consecutive questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of loaves did you take up? Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. Don't you understand? Jesus is exasperated with their stubborn, persistent blindness and hardness of heart. How could they still not trust him? Yet they had followed him. Why? Because something had happened to him. They had seen something in Jesus worth following. They had seen glimpses of light in the midst of their darkness of unbelief. 
Now, their blindness was not of the same degree of the Pharisees and of Herod. Theirs was a total darkness, a total blindness. Both the Pharisees and Herod were completely blind, totally opposed to Jesus. And this unbelief, this leaven manifested itself in in different ways, such that they opposed Jesus for different reasons. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he threatened their positions as the stewards of the law and the religious elite in Israel, the ones who, who maintained all of the people's admiration. Those are the holy guys. Herod feared Jesus because he was a holy man. He thought he was a man like John the Baptist. And he thought that if he touched him, maybe, maybe God would strike him dead or something. Yet even though their opposition took different forms, it stemmed from the same root. Both the Pharisees and Herod were completely blind to the glory of Christ. But the disciples were different. They saw something of his glory. Theirs was a partial blindness. But there was a danger that their partial blindness, if not fully healed, could turn to a total blindness like that of the Pharisees and of Herod. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's exactly what happened in the case of Judas. And it's against this leaven of blindness and unbelief that Jesus warns them. And there's a danger here that we need to be warned against this morning. Because we are like the disciples, seeing partially, but not yet completely. We've seen something of the glory of Christ that has drawn us to follow Him. We've seen something that has captivated our attention. And yet we so often live our lives like the disciples, arguing about bread living in fear, living in anxiety, as if Jesus were not the Son of God, as if He didn't command the wind and the waves and raise the dead by the power of His voice. As if He were not the one who multiplied bread and fish for the 5,000 and for the 4,000 and had more after they were finished than they started, and yet we think He can't take care of us. We're just like them still partially blind. And to us this morning, Jesus says, watch out. So I say to you and to me this morning, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of unbelief. Fear unbelief and seek to kill it and eradicate it wherever you see it cropping up in your life because there's a danger. If you doubt whether there is a real danger of falling back into the blindness of unbelief, just think of Judas who had witnessed all of the miracles of Jesus, who had performed miracles by his own hand and then betrayed Christ. If you doubt whether this is a real danger, just listen to these chilling words from Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So if you have seen something of Christ's glory, if you have 
tasted of the heavenly gift, if you have seen something that has compelled you to begin to follow him, it is absolutely imperative that you press on to the fullness of sight. That you press into a deeper, fuller, more glorious vision of his all-satisfying glory. Do not be content with seeing in Jesus something valuable. Press on until you see in him the treasure that outweighs everything else in your life. Such that you eagerly and joyfully sell all in order to obtain him. Well, it's not by accident that the very next event in Mark's gospel is the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida, because it affords then an illustration, uh, an acted parable for the disciples of spiritual blindness and its cure. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is the only miracle in all of the gospels that occurs in stages. And that ought to cause us to pause and say, why? Why did Jesus heal this man in stages? You really only have two options. You could say on the one hand, well, this man's blindness was of such an extent that G- and Jesus' power was, was somewhat limited so that after trying once, he had to give it another go just to make sure that he got it right. Okay? Nothing we've seen in Mark's gospel so far would lead us to that conclusion. This Jesus says, be still, and the forces of nature, zoom. He commands the dead to rise, and they come to life. He could have healed this man by the power of his word instantaneously, and it would have happened, but he doesn't. Why? Because he has a purpose. I conclude that Jesus is being very intentional in healing this man in stages and in using a rather unusual amount of means to do so, applying saliva to his eyes, laying hands upon him. There's something he wants to teach us. And in light of this context, I think there's four things. I think this is an object lesson, an acted parable for the disciples and for us regarding spiritual blindness and how Jesus cures it. Four quick truths. Number one, the opening of blind eyes is the gift of God. It's not the work of man. This man could do nothing to affect his own healing. No matter how hard he tried, he could not see. Blind men cannot make themselves see. To return to the parable with which we began, whether or not a man sees the treasure hidden in the field is entirely owing to the free and sovereign grace of God. He gives sight to the blind and no one else. Yet, this blind man was brought to Jesus by friends, wasn't he? I don't think that's accidental. The sovereign grace of God in salvation is not in opposition to the role of man in evangelism. Rather, it is through our faithful, prayerful evangelism. Look how Mark says it. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. 
It's through that work that the grace of God and the power of God comes to sinners and opens their eyes and brings them to salvation. So you cannot make your blind friends see. You cannot make your blind children see. You cannot make your blind family members see. You cannot make the blind see. But you can bring them to Jesus and beg him to touch him. That's what evangelism is. Bring them to Jesus and beg him to touch them. Third, the recovery of our spiritual sight often occurs in stages. It's the way it happened for the disciples. I think it's the way it happens for us. They had seen something of Christ's glory when they were first called. They continued to see glimpses of his glory through the clouds of their residual blindness, the cataracts of sin that remained. But their sight of Jesus was like this man's initial sight. I see men walking, but they look like trees. I see the Son of God, but it's, it's still hazy. That was illustrated in the last section when they're arguing about bread. They're still partially blind to the person of Christ, and therefore they don't trust his provision, but they just flounder in residual unbelief. And that's where every one of us who are in Christ finds ourselves this morning to one degree or another. God is in the process of healing our spiritual blindness. It's called sanctification. The gradual, progressive recovery of spiritual sight. And while we remain in this state of partial blindness, we need to watch out because there is that ever-present danger of falling back into the leaven of unbelief of the Pharisees and of Herod and proving that, just like Judas, whatever it was we think we saw, it was just a mirage. Number four, the recovery of sight comes through the repeated touch of Christ. I think there's a reason why Jesus did not heal this man instantly by the power of his word, but rather he just kept touching him. I think it's indicative of the way in which the recovery of our sight comes to us. It comes through the repeated personal touch of Christ. In other words, we must continue to press in to see more lest we begin to fall away and see less. Well, having healed this man's blindness and charged him not to enter the village lest word of the healing get out, Jesus be once again bombarded by the crowds Jesus and his disciples then head 25 miles due north to Caesarea Philippi in the foot of Mount Hermon. And it's on the way that what was illustrated in the blind man and his healing happens in the heart of Peter. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. We're going to return to this verse next week and work on to the end of the chapter. But this morning I want to conclude by focusing upon Peter's confession and Jesus' response, which is not actually recorded in Mark's gospel, but it's recorded in Matthew's, in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew shows us there was something happened in Peter that allowed him to see so clearly in this moment. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And look at this. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Flesh and blood had not revealed to Simon Peter who Jesus was. He had not seen the treasure of his own accord. He had not made his own blind eyes see. God had opened his eyes and given him the gift of sight. And it is true that he still saw but dimly just men walking around like trees because he's going to turn around in the next breath and he's going to rebuke Jesus for talking about his sufferings. Even though he saw dimly, in this moment though he saw truly. He had been touched by God, the scales had fallen from his eyes and he saw in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God the living God, and he saw the treasure hidden in the field, and in time he would see it so clearly that he would sell everything he had in order to obtain it. Has that happened to you? Have you seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, more to be treasured and more to be desired than anything in this world? Have you seen the treasure hidden in the field? If so, then the charge of this text is to press in. Press in to see with greater and greater clarity. It happens through the Word. It happens through prayer. It happens by the working of the Spirit. But beware. Beware the leaven of unbelief, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Judas who initially saw something, but as time went on, he saw Jesus as less and less compelling. Certainly not as compelling as 40 pieces of silver. Press into the Word and cry out to God until He comes to you and makes Jesus so precious to you that you treasure Him above all else. Eternity hangs on this question for you this morning, and by God's grace and spirit, I want it to press down upon you with its full weight. Who do you say that Jesus is? Or, to put it another way, what do you see in Him? And the answer that saves is, we see treasure. 